Today's passage comes from the book of John, chapter 4, verses 1 through 24. Uh, Please follow along in your own Bibles, or you can also follow along on the screen behind me. Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John. Though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well around noontime. Soon, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, please give me this water, then I'll never be thirsty again and I won't have to come here to get water. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you have, you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you are living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshipped? Jesus replied, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews." But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning, church. Uh, My name is Pastor Joseph, and I have the privilege of uh, sharing the word uh, this morning. And uh, as we look to our passage this morning, uh, we're beginning this week a series uh, on um, a lifestyle of worship. And uh, over the course of the next couple of weeks, what our goal and our objective is, is to help us to be able to understand from a biblical perspective uh, what God expects of us 
uh, in worship and worship broader than just what we think of as the Sunday morning experience as worship, but worship that extends to everything that we do and how we do it as an offering back unto God. Um, we're going to talk specifically about what worship looks like from different contexts. And, you know, one of the primary, uh, 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 primary forms that we use to worship uh, is, again, through our singing and through uh, the worship that we do uh, here as we gather together as a congregation. But we're going to learn and understand that uh, there are multi-dimensions to our worship. And so if I had an objective as a pastor in terms of what I hope that you would gain from this series um, is to expand your horizons of the way that you view worship. And uh, if you've ever seen something in one dimension and then it changes into two dimension or three dimensions, uh, meaning that it goes from the paper and then it becomes real life or it's a three-dimensional form, you begin to see how it takes even a greater depth and uh, gives even uh, a greater insight in terms of that. And so I'm praying that through this, um, we would have a greater depth in our worship in all capacities, in all ways. As we look to the text this morning, um, you know, I'm reminded of uh, one of the interesting things that happens in life. And uh, that is that seasons come and seasons go. And one of the interesting seasons that was a, a, an adjustment for me over 12 and a half years ago, I married my beautiful wife. And uh, at the time, I was still in law school. And uh, I got married. Uh, I was going into my uh, third year of law school. And uh, it was interesting because there was an adjustment that had to be made. And I, I don't know how many of you are like me, but I am a creature of habit. Anybody uh, out here who are creatures of habit, you like things the way that you have them, and there's a reason why you have them that way. Well, there's no way to challenge that habit than to get married. And uh, 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 it's a beautiful thing, but um, there's the challenge because as I got married, I began to understand that my way that I thought was the perfect way of doing things was now being challenged by my beautiful bride who came into my house and didn't quite agree with my idea of home decoration. Um, she didn't quite agree with where things should be. She had a place and she didn't quite appreciate that my papers and books were all over the dining room table. The dining room table's for eating and not for studying and move your books and all of these different things. And I was the one where I needed to have everything right in his rightful place. I remember one time uh, I had a stack of papers and, and Pastor Ophelia asked me, she was like, well, well, I just moved those papers and I put them together. And I was like, but you don't understand. I knew exactly how far down in the stack was the paper that I needed. And now it's all been turned upside down. I share that story because one of the things that happens in the kingdom of God or as we come to a knowledge of God is that we come out of a life where we practice things in our own way, our own understanding. And if you were like me, maybe there were things that you had perfectly set out 
And then Jesus comes in and he says, I'm going to make you a new creation in Christ Jesus. And as a part of that, he begins to, and, 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 and Jesus doesn't do it all at once. I mean, come on. <laughs> My wife knew, you know, she couldn't just come in and rearrange everything. But slowly I began to see papers and things were moving out of places. And slowly I would look out on trash day and say, hey, isn't that my desk? Hey, isn't that my paper? Oh, my goodness. And, and Jesus comes into our lives. And he begins to go into areas of our life, and he begins to challenge some of our assumptions. He begins to challenge some of the things that we had held, and he begins to take and reshape and reform us in his image and also gives us, this is the way that I want you to relate to me. And what we begin to see here in this passage here in John is that we see a dynamic encounter as Jesus has taken on flesh, come and came to this earth. He is dwelling amongst us, and he begins to go out, and as he's ministering to the people, all of the people were expecting, when is our earthly king going to come? They were expecting someone who was going to come and take over and be a king in the earth. I mean, maybe the king uh, the king that would come, maybe it would help them with removing taxes from Caesar, and maybe it would, it would help them to be able to freely worship, but they were expecting an earthly king. But Jesus was coming and saying, my kingdom is not of this world. And so though there are rulers who will be in place in this world, my kingdom is greater and bigger, and I'm going to show you things beyond that which you were able to even comprehend. And so as we start off here in uh, the Gospel of John chapter number 4, we realize that this story has been introduced by John the Baptist. And in John 1.29, John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist knew who Jesus was, and he was proclaiming him. But what we have, see here as we turn to chapter number four is that there is this an encounter by a Samaritan woman and Jesus, and she has no idea of who is in her very presence. You ever been in the presence of someone who was a celebrity or something, and maybe you didn't know or understand that that was that person, and then the only time you realized was maybe someone started asking for an autograph or someone said, hey, are you that person? Well, this was kind of the encounter that the Samaritan woman had. What we see here is Jesus is traveling, and as he's traveling, he must go through Samaria on his journey home. And as he is going through this town, he does something that would not be the custom of that day and age. First of all, it is the middle of the day and he is going to a well and he is asking for water. The second aspect is that he not only is asking for water in the middle of the day where it is hot and people would not go to fetch water, but he's also asking it of a Samaritan woman. We know that in some societies there are deep 
divides that are between cultures. And one of the things that we knew going on at this time was that the Jews and the Samaritans did not interact with one another. As a matter of fact, the Jews looked down upon the Samaritans and considered them less than. And look as we see here in John chapter number four, the conversation that happens between Jesus and this Samaritan woman. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised for Jews refused to have anything to do with the Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan. What, why are you asking me for a drink? And of course, Jesus reveals to her that he was no ordinary Jew and that giving him a drink from the well was the least that she could do. Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. This was a practice that Jesus, I mean, Jesus, oh man, I mean, he was just amazing as you look at the encounters that he had. And Jesus would always use natural earthly things, drawing well water, to relate to heavenly realities. Come on, how many of you know, I mean, this week it was hot, I mean, it was hot. I mean, I think it was on Tuesday. Um, I'm getting ready for July 4th, and I'm getting up. And, and, you know, you get up in the morning, and you're just expecting that, you know, you go outside the door. It's going you know, to slowly, gradually warm up. By, by, but by that time, you'll be in the office with air conditioning, and everything was good. But I came outside the door on Tuesday morning, and when I opened that door, it was like a wall of heat just smacked me in the face, and sweat just began dripping down my face, and I just took. I mean, my steps even felt slow as I was going outside the door, and I'm feeling, man, is it hot. And what happens when you're hot? What do you want when it's hot? You want water. You want something to drink. You're thirsty. And here Jesus had been walking in the hot sun, and he was thirsty, and he goes to this well, and he, he challenges this woman. He says, give me a drink out of the well. And she's saying, why should I even give you a drink? And why are you even interacting with me? But Jesus was introducing a reality that was bigger than even she was thinking about. One drink might get you through Tuesday, but he was telling her, I want to give to you a drink that you will drink and you will never be thirsty again. If you see that just with natural eyes, you'll think, wow, what kind of water is that? Can I patent that? Can I make some money off of that? But Jesus was trying to tell her this was something bigger than natural. This was supernatural, and he was the giver of life. Now, after this encounter, Jesus begins to interact with her and begins to call her out, and he begins to say, go bring your husband. I mean, you ever had a conversation with someone, and they just, they just turn it around the corner. 
Jesus was having this conversation about water, and then now he begins to ask her about your husband. And then they begin to go on in this dialogue. Now, our focus this morning is not this conversation, but it sets the context as we begin to see the second kind of shift that happens in this conversation. One of the things that happens when we feel and we're in places where the conversation starts to get a little bit heated or it starts to get a little bit intense or it starts to get a little bit deeper than we want it to go is that you, you have to master the art of redirection. Um, you know, as a pastor, I've understood that, you know, usually when I ask questions or someone will come to me for counseling, uh, uh, they are going to sometimes knowingly, sometimes unknowingly try to redirect the conversation. But at the point, I'm trying to get to the center of what is the issue so that we can bring a godly solution to the issue that is at hand. Let's see how the Samaritan woman redirected the conversation. In verse number 20, she said, so, anytime you see so, a redirect might be coming that way. So, tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim that it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshipped. To understand the Samaritan woman's question, you have to have an understanding or a history of the Old Testament. And one of the things that we see that was set out in the Old Testament was a pattern of worship and we know it started with the Ark of the Covenant, but the presence of the Lord was considered where the Ark traveled and to eventually it came to a permanent home, which was a temple. And so the temple became the place that we thought about as the sanctified place where God lives kind of like what I like to say, you know, so when somebody asks me, oh, you live in Boston? I said, yes, that's where God lives. Um, but uh, uh, we know in the recognition there was a place, a physical place where they looked at in terms of worship. But we see here the New Testament brings to us a new way and new understanding of worship. Let's look in our Bibles in Acts chapter number 7. And in Acts chapter number 7, starting at verse number 44, the apostle Paul is explaining here, and he says, Our ancestors carried the tabernacle with them through the wilderness. It was constructed according to the plan God had shown to Moses. Years later, when Joshua led our ancestors in battle against the nations that God drove out of this land, the tabernacle was taken with them into the new territory. And it stayed there until the time of King David. David found favor with God and asked for the privilege of building a permanent temple for the God of J Jacob. But it was Solomon who actually built it. However, the Most High doesn't live in temples made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. 
Could you build me a temple as good as that, asked the Lord. Could you build me a resting place? Didn't my hands make both heaven and earth? When we read this passage, we understand that between the old and the new, Jesus comes in and sets a new order, a new system, and a new pattern for worship. You know, sometimes the thing that hinders us is the, well, that's not the way we used to do it. That's not the way that I understood it. That's not the way I want to do it. But what we realize is that in Christ Jesus, he begins to say that he is the fulfillment of all that was prophesied in the Old Testament. He becomes the one who is the one that we worship wholeheartedly. In the Old Testament, they had to bring sacrifices to the temple. You know, the Old Testament system of sacrifices. And every time that you sinned, you would have to atone for those sins. Let me just, let me just think about that for a moment. Just think over the last week. And think about any time that you may have done something that was not pleasing to God. Maybe it was hot and you let some words come out of your mouth. Maybe you acted in anger towards your brother or sister. Maybe you were jealous of something that someone has. Maybe you were covetous of, 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 of the blessings that would belong to someone else. Maybe you lusted after someone or something. Uh, maybe there was something that where your thoughts and other things were not pleasing unto the Lord. But whatever it may have been, in the Old Testament system, what would you have to do for every sin you would have to atone. You would have to make a sacrifice. But Jesus comes along and says, no more sacrifices. I am the sacrifice once and for all. And based upon that, he sets this new order of worship and he begins to t instruct this Samaritan woman about how this new order of worship is to take place. Jesus turns the conversation away from the place of worship to the nature of worship. Her question was, well, what's the ch best church in Boston? Is it High Rock Brookline? Is it Mars Hill Fellowship Church? Is it Mosaic Church? I mean, her question was, what's the place that we're supposed to be worshiping? Jesus' response was, even if I told you the place, what good is it if you knew the right place, but you don't know how to worship me wholeheartedly? You might go to the right place, and just do things that I would look at and say, I don't receive that. 
But Jesus says, I not only want you to know and understand that the right place for worship is not in a temple, but it is everywhere. My earth is, the earth is mine and all that is there. And so every place that you go, it is a proper place to give me worship and to praise my holy name. And he says that the nature of worship is that they that worship must worship in spirit and in truth. Look to Jesus' reply in verse number 21. Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. Your, you Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation came through the Jews. But the time is coming and is here now. We are in the now of the here now. The time is here now when true worshipers, everybody say true worshipers. Listen, if we're going to take time out and live this life, I want to be a true worshiper. I want to be a worshiper that God looks at and says, I am pleased. Well done, my good and faithful servant. I want God to look at and to say, it is a blessing to be able to see this is my son, my daughter. And look what they are doing with all that I have given to them. And he says, the time is now coming. And it is indeed here now when true worshipers were worshiping. Worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking. The Father is looking. The Father is looking. You know what would be a shame? Is that if God the Father or Jesus came into our worship services and said, I don't recognize what this is. I was looking for true worshipers, but instead I found people that maybe just do it out of obligation. I found people that just do it because that was the ritual that they knew. I found it that there's people who worship and sing songs, but they never want to truly get to know me. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. These verses are packed with wonderful truths about the nature of worship. And as we reflect upon these principles, it, sets, it helps us to set up a foundation for biblical worship and why it is essential for the life of believers. Let me also preface that again, as I mentioned, as we're talking about worship, there are multiple contexts to worship. Most of us associate worship with the Sunday morning gathering, but that is just a piece, a slice of what worship looks like in the eyes of God. Worship in its most broadest sense 
is captured in Romans 12 and 1. It says this in Romans 12 and 1. And so, dear brothers, I plead with you. Let me plead with you, Mars Hill and High Rock, this morning. I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. This is, it says, let them be a living and a holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. And he concludes with this. This is truly the way to worship him. What we begin seeing here is that worship is more than whether you can sing. And for those of you who might feel that you're not the best singer or you might feel that your singing voice, you can't, you can't harmonize with everybody else, I, I've, I know that you are probably some of the same ones that when you are in the shower singing, you've got your favorite jam on and it's early in the morning, you sing loudly and you sing out and you have a great time of joy. Well, guess what? God wants you to worship him with that same heart. And so no matter whether you know every note, no matter whether you know how or can harmonize with it, he invites you to use the breath that he's given to you to give him praise. But we must also understand that if singing is the only thing that we do for worship, we have only tapped into one dimension of worship. God asks us to love, uh, love him with what? All of our what? Heart, soul, mind, and strength. I believe that true worship is worship that engages not just the emotions and the hearts, but true worship engages our mind. True worship should allow our minds to be filled with bewilderment and to be able to look at the awesomeness of God. I mean, we should be able to look at molecular structures and be able to say, our God is good and worthy to be praised. He is awesome in this place. We should be able to go out and see nature. We can walk in the arboretum and begin to look at the beauty of God's handiwork and say, our God is good. And we can just begin to fall in worship and say, Lord, I thank you for the beauty of your creation. True worship engages our heart, our mind, our soul, and all of our being and strength. The challenge for most of us is that we have a preference in our nature of worship. And a preference is not a bad thing, but the challenge is to expand our horizons beyond that which is just our preference. Let me just take a poll real quickly. How many people uh, like ice cream? All right. What are some of your favorite flavors? Uh, just yell them out. Chocolate. What else? Mint chip. Vanilla. 
What Oreo? Coffee Oreo. Woo, I got to try that. Oh, man. Peanut butter Oreo. Which one? Peach. Oh. So, I want you to think about when it's a hot day and you go to the ice cream shop, one of those homemade ice cream shops. They make their homemade ice cream. And I want you to think you get an ice cream in a cone or a cup if you like it. And you just take that first dip of the ice cream. Now, each of us are probably going to have different reactions when we have that bit of ice cream. There are going to be some of us where our reaction is just going to be a smile. That was good. There are some of us who will just begin to ponder the amount of work that was put into making this ice cream and being so thankful that someone took their hard work and spent so much time fashioning it and saying, thank you, thank you, Lord, for the ice cream man or woman who made this ice cream cone. Some of us are a little more vocal. Some of us might get that piece of ice cream and we might let out a hallelujah. (laughs) That was good. But the nature of it is not that you have to express your response in the same way, but that you take time to respond. See, what we need to understand in worship, in multidimensional worship, is that there are different natures. Preferences, one of the things is that, especially in your private worship time, because there is both private and public worship, those are all facets of worship. And so in your private time, you may focus on more of your uh, your preference towards your style of worship. And so some of you, it might just be singing unto God. Some of you, it might be reading of the scriptures. Some of you, you might worship through even your gardening and taking care. Some of you are the Marthas and you worship through your organizational skills. Did you know that you could worship through organization? The organizers in the room are getting real excited right now. (laughs) They're like, really? Oh my goodness, wow! But even through that, Martha could worship even through the work that she was doing. But we have to understand that even in our private worship, there is a component of public worship. And part of our public worship is to recognize that the worship that we're doing in public is not just so that we can feel okay, but our public worship and the blessing of our public worship is so that we come together as the body of Christ and we begin to worship with one another. Let let me help you out. When we get to heaven, there will not be a CCM section, a gospel section, a punk rock gospel section, and then a hip-hop section over here. When we get to heaven, you know what's going to happen? We are all going to worship together. Now, the only way that we all worship together is that some of us are going to have to learn how to worship outside of our preference or the way that we're used to. 
And what happens is that as we come together, the beauty is not in the chord progression or the way that we form the song. The beauty is in that we are all on one accord. Come on, turn to your neighbor and say one accord. Worship brings us to the place where we are on one accord taking our life in response to God and in the same way that in worship the beauty when you have different parts is that you know you can have unison and everybody sings in unison meaning that we all sing the same note but the beauty of worship is that you can go from unison to parts and the parts is that each person has their note and they express their worship and it comes together to be on one accord. And so today, what Jesus was instructing uh, the Samaritan woman is that he was telling her the pattern of worship that the Father was looking for would that be that we would be on one accord. And what we begin to see in the truths from this as we look to verse 23, part B, is that first it tells us that there is a pattern of worship that God finds pleasing. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. By inference, it must mean that not all patterns of worship are pleasing or desirable in God's sight. And in fact, what we see is that flattery or worship without a heart posture towards God means nothing to him. Verse 22 said, you Samaritans know very little about the one you worship. In a stinging rebuke, he challenged the Samaritan woman and declared that she was proud of the fact, look, we worship at Mount Gerizim. But they were worshiping a God that they did not know. And even worse than that, they were worshiping a God that they didn't want to know. They were fine with just give me the ritual. And God said, that's not the type of worship that I'm looking for. The time was coming, and it is indeed here now at Mars Hill and I Rock, where true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And as I bring this together to close, I just want to preface this as we kind of put a bookend on it for today, and we'll pick this back up next week. What does it mean to worship in spirit and in truth? Our first clue is in verse 24 where John declares, God is spirit. God is spirit. How does that give us a clue about what God is looking for, for the type of worship that he desires from us? John 3, earlier in John's gospel, John 3 and 6, says flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. What happens when Christ Jesus comes is that he transforms us 
the song says, from the inside out. The amazing work that God does within us is he turns our heart from a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. By that we mean not that it is the fleshly nature, but what it means is that he reworks our heart that was callous towards God and callous towards the things of God. And he turns it around and he, he allows us to experience the beautiful nature of what God is doing and to be aware of all that is happening within us. Worshiping in spirit and in truth is simply allowing ourselves to be able to respond to what God is doing in and through each and every one of our hearts. I try when I wake up in the morning to just think of something I am thankful for. And the reason why I do that is because that helps center me at the beginning of my day, lest I wake up and just think this is a day about me and a day about what I'm able to do throughout this day. If I can be honest in sharing, there was a season in my life where I was battling a number of medical issues and I, I went in a bout of depression. And, and any of you who have ever suffered through depression, you may know what it's like when you wake up first thing in the morning and you haven't even started the day and you've already felt like your day has been defeated. And as I began to wake up with these days and I would already go into panic at the beginning of the morning, already, oh man, I've messed up my day and I'll never be able to accomplish what I need to be able to do. God began to say, just worship me in the beginning of the morning. And so I began to just wake up in the morning and in the midst of the beginning of my day, I began to say, God, you're worthy to be praised. God, you are exalted in this earth. And so through my confession that I started out the day, that was my way of worship. But in the morning, I worshiped him. Early, I would rise up to seek him. And in, the, in that place, I began to say, Lord, help me to respond to your goodness. And part of it is it helped me to see things that were there. And they were there all the time. But my eyes had not perceived them because I was so focused on all the other things that were going on. Do you know that there are so many things that become in? in this life that are distractions? Do you know that the tactic that the enemy would desire to use is to distract you? And so he'll try and bring in distractions that will come in. And what is he trying to distract you from? From recognizing and responding to the goodness of God. But our confession, our praise, our worship, our giving, our sacrificing, our obedience, these all become antidotes to the enemy's tactics. And they, with our worship, begin to say, Lord, I will worship and I will exalt you. But he says, not only are we going to worship in spirit, meaning that which the spirit has done within us, recognizing and responding to it. But he says it must also be done in truth. Worship that is not grounded is false worship. And anything that is false worship is idolatry. Let me say something. Might be controversial, but I have a challenge 
to the church of this age. I'm not speaking just to Mars Hill or to High Rock, but I'm speaking to the church in this hour in 2018. It is possible to take the things of God, the good things that he's given, given to us, and take them out of the context that he desired for them to be. And so something that was good then becomes an idol. What do I mean by that? We can make idolatry out of the worship songs that we sing. We can make idolatry of, well, you know, I only feel God's presence when they sing it this way. But what God wants us to understand is that those are only tools, instruments that we use into only to worship our great God. I was laughing this week because uh, those of you who may have grown up in a church where a tambourine was a, a part of your worship service, and, and those of you who didn't grow up in those, uh, you know, in many uh, African-American churches, uh, a tambourine is an instrument of worship that is utilized. And so I was laughing because they had on video, now they have an iPhone tambourine. <laughs> so... <laughs> My man was sitting in service <laughs> and he had, instead of his tambourine, he had a little iPhone worshiping God. And, and, and I laughed at it not because, oh my goodness, how improper of him to use an iPhone. Because I recognize that's just a tool or an instrument of worship. And what God wants us is not so much to be focused on this is the way that I've done it all the time. But he wants us to be focused on where is your heart position? In Old English, worship derived from the concept of ascribing worth to something. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for worship meant to bow down or to prostrate oneself no matter whether it's up temple low temple mid temple whether it's through our giving whether it's through our obedience whether it's through our singing our confession God is looking for the heart position of those who will say I bow down to you God and I worship you for who you are would you just bow your head for a moment? In a moment, the worship team is going to lead us in a response song. And this morning, I want us not so much to focus on just, oh, I've got to sing the right notes or I've got to sing all the right words. But I want you to focus on centering your heart to allow God to receive your worship, to worship in spirit and in truth. For these are those who the Father seeks after.